On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and all the rest. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been here for some time, you know that I was 18, two months out of high school when my bishop down in Texas sent word through the district superintendent that I was being appointed to two little country churches. When I objected that I had not yet preached even once, I was told there's really nothing to this. You go to college five days a week. You spend all day Saturday visiting parishioners. Saturday night, you write a sermon. The next morning, you get up and drive 17 miles to the smaller church, and you preach at 9. Then you drive 17 miles back to the bigger church, and you preach at 11. You have all afternoon to write another sermon, which you will preach at the bigger church at 7.30, and Monday morning, you go back to college. As he started to back out of the driveway, I said what do I do if somebody dies? And he said, oh, nobody's going to die, and drove away. Three weeks later, somebody died. I didn't know if I was supposed to walk in front of the casket or behind the casket. I wasn't sure. I'd been to two funerals in my whole life. Both times I was more concerned about what was happening to my mother when she had lost father and mother than what the preacher was doing, where he was walking, what he was saying. But as of Thursday afternoon, I've been with 924 families in just such a situation. But I've learned through the years some important things. I went straight through, going through summertime. I got my bachelor's degree in three years, and Going through the summer, I finished three years of graduate school. I was fully ordained when I was 24 years old. In seminary, they told us about stages of grief. They told us about a horrible fire that had occurred in Boston in 1942 at a place called the Coconut Grove. Just months after our country had been thrust into this horrible World War II, young adults in Boston were trying to relieve the strain with a big night out at a, at a nightclub when suddenly a fire erupted. Not nearly so many laws as we have today about public places, so some ran to the back of the building and found the doors locked. They had no key. Others ran to the front of the building and found revolving doors which now were clogged with people trying to get out, stampeding into each other, 492 people died in that fire. Every pastor in Boston who was willing to participate, every psychologist, every psychiatrist was called in to go and notify the next of kin. These were young, vibrant, 
adults who had died, and now their next of kin were being told what had happened. They continued to compare notes over several years, and these caregivers discovered that those survivors seemed to go through stages of grief, five of them. Some people went through the first three in two hours. Some people got hung up on one of the stages for years and years. Twenty-five years later, a psychiatrist named Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross invested her life in those who have been declared terminally ill. She had spent copious amount of time with 500 such people, and she observed that in those 500, they went through five stages of grief, the same five as the survivors had gone through. Now these persons grieving their own death in very much the same way. Let's take a look. These behavioral scientists say that the first stage persons go through, sometimes in a matter of minutes and sometimes get hung up for years, is denial. This can't be happening to me. I can beat this. I can get well. I know I can. Or this couldn't have been my son, my daughter, my wife. My Couldn't have been. Just couldn't. Late one afternoon down in Texas, I was jogging at the downtown YMCA. They had a circular track. I'd made several laps when I came round one corner, and there stood a Beaumont police officer in full uniform blocking the path. My heart sank. I had three kids. I had a wife. What had happened? Something went wrong with one of my kids. Somebody had hurt my wife. And when I got to him, he asked if I was, in fact, the pastor of a certain young man in the city. I said, yes. And he said, he has stuck a deer rifle in the roof of his mouth and pulled the trigger. I need you to shower and dress as quickly as you can and go with me to help tell his wife. I've never forgotten that late afternoon, having to tell her. This young man was 36. I was 35. His wife, my wife, same age. They had a daughter, so did we. They had two sons, so did we. Their sons, our sons, same little league team. It was horrible to try to help her, to call each one of the children home from playing with their friends and tell these three small children their father was not coming home again. I promised her I would do anything I could to help her get through this horrible thing. So as others began to come and give more support, come and prepare the evening meal, make coffee, help clean up around. Finally, as things quietened down a little, I said, I, I'm going to go on home now. But you can call me if you need me. I'll check in with you in the morning. And she said, I want to see him. I said, didn't you hear what the police officer said to you? And she grabbed my lapels of my coat and said, I need to see him. You told me you would help me. I need you to take me to see him. I said, let me call the funeral director. I called. 
And he said, I can drape him well enough, bring her over. And so I took her over. She and I walked into the room with the funeral director. And when she reached out and caught hold of his hand and wept for three or four minutes, she said, okay, I'm ready to go. Denial, number one. Number two is anger. Anger. This is sometimes visited upon physicians when death has come. A police officer, clergy person who didn't happen to be there at the exact moment that death came. It can be forced on a number of different individuals. When I was 19 in college that summer, I got a call late one afternoon that one of the men in the smaller of my two churches had just had a heart attack and was dead. He was 44. I knew this family really well. They lived farther out in the country than I did. I rode a school bus into the Carthage Independent Schools for 12 years every morning, every afternoon, and the five children of this man rode the same school bus. They were already on the bus when I, my sister and brother, got on every day. And two months after I was graduated from high school, I was their pastor. I knew them well. I rushed to their house. I saw all five of them sitting on the front porch. It was a country home, their feet dangling off the front porch. And I could hear their mother screaming from the other room, How could he do this to me? How could he die and leave me with five kids? How am I going to feed them? How am I going to clothe them? How am I going to educate them? How could I told him to take better care of himself. And as one neighbor after another would arrive and go in to see her, she started all over again saying, I was having no success at all reasoning with her. So I went back out on the porch where the children were. And I asked, what chores do we need to do before it gets dark? And one little boy said, we have to feed the horse. I said, do you know how to do that? He said, yes. One said, we have to milk the cow. I said, which one of you milks best? One raised his hand. I said, can you do that? He said he could. One of the little girls said, we have to feed the chickens and gather the eggs. I said, do you know how to do that? She said she did. I said, I'll help you too. And I caught the little girls by the hand, and we started out to the chicken house. And the boys went to round up the horse and the milk cow. And when we got the horse fed and the cow milked and the eggs gathered and the chickens fed, it was getting dark. And we went into the house, and their mother and her sister were fixing supper for the five kids. Anger, number two. Number three is bargaining, often directed toward God, of course. Both those who are dying and those who have survived. Some bargain we try to make with God to make everything work out just the way we want. One of the boys who graduated high school with me in the bigger church, I now became his pastor two months after we graduated. And four years later, his mother was diagnosed with leukemia. She was treated aggressively, but was not doing better, getting worse. 
Her sister had belonged to a prayer group in Shreveport, and they had convinced her that if you pray to God just the right way, he'll tell you to turn left and turn right and go down this street, and you can find the couch that fits your den, all that sort of thing. You know those people. And she really had bought into that, you know, that if we get it just right, we can get whatever we want. And so she said to me, now, if you and I will pray every day for my sister, she'll get well. I said, okay. She got worse. Every Sunday night, Gail and I were driving to Dallas for me to go to college all week in graduate school and then driving back this 175 miles. And so this sister said to me one Sunday night when I just finished preaching and we were about to drive back to Dallas, she said, I think we need to pray at exactly the same time. You in Dallas, I here at exactly the same time. When could you do that the same time every day? I said, I have an 8 o'clock class. I have a 9 o'clock class. At 10.15, five days a week, I go to chapel. That'd probably be the best time. She said, 10.30? I said, 10.30. Okay, she said, every day at 10.30, I'm going to count on you to be in chapel praying for my sister, and I will be in a place by myself praying for her. Okay? I said, okay. We got home that Friday night. I called. How's your sister? Not good, she said. Not doing well. The next week, we prayed at 1030. I in Dallas. She 175 miles away. Next weekend, the sister was worse. And the next week, worse. And the next week, worse. And one weekend, I got there and called her. And the sister said, I had a vision. I said, really? said, yes, the Lord spoke to me in a vision this week and said, my sister is going to receive the perfect healing. I said, really? She said, yes, she's going to die, and he's going to take her home. Bargaining, that's number three. Number four is depression. Depression. It can happen to one who knows he or she's dying, Sometimes they just get so tired, don't have the energy. And sometimes they begin to distance themselves from the people they love the most. And that's really painful. Every other weekend, Thursday night to Saturday night, Gail and I were driving down to Texas to relieve my brother and his wife, sister and her husband, when my dad was dying. One Saturday morning, we were hovering there near his bed, and my mother said, oh, here comes the preacher. And my dad said, oh, no. I said, Dad, I thought you liked your preacher. He said, I do like him, but he stays too long. I remembered that. I told myself, don't be the preacher that stays too long. There comes a time when the sick do not have the energy to spend all that time. And sometimes they go into deep depression about their own coming death. They don't talk much, maybe not at all, and maybe pushing away the people they love the most. One of my first funerals, a woman died, had the funeral late Thursday afternoon. Sunday morning, I got up, drove to the smaller church, 
preached, drove 17 miles back to the bigger church. And as I pulled into the parking area there around that little church, I saw the man, the spouse, standing by the fresh grave in the cemetery. The cemetery is right by the church. I looked at my watch. I had about 12 minutes or so. I walked out into the cemetery. He was standing there all by himself. I asked, may I, may I help you? He shook his head. I said, could I pray with you? He nodded. I said a prayer. He took out his handkerchief, wiped his eyes, blew his nose. I said, it's time for church. He and I hooked arms. We walked into worship. I spent all afternoon writing a sermon, and 20 minutes before time for the evening service, I walked across Parsonage Church, only two buildings out there in the country, facing each other across the little oil road. And as I started walking to the church, I saw him out there in the cemetery by himself, standing by that fresh new grave. I walked out and said quietly, May I help you? Shook his head. I said, May I pray with you? He nodded. I prayed. He wiped his eyes, blew his nose. We hooked arms and went into church. The next Sunday morning, the next Sunday night, the next Sunday morning, the next Sunday night, the next Sunday morning, the next Sunday night, four months later, I got a call. He had died. And for the first time, I heard a doctor say he died of a broken heart. He got to stage number four, and he couldn't get out, just couldn't get out deep depression. Number five. Number five is acceptance. Acceptance that this seems to be the way things are going to play out. Acceptance when we know someone whom we love is not going to be with us much longer the way we've known them or we've just found out they have died and we know they're not going to be with us as we've known them before or when we know ourselves that we're really close to that moment ourselves. And then we turn to these four Gospels, and we hear each one of these writers tell the story. Luke says the women followed and saw where Joseph of Arimathea put the body. They saw the big stone rolled over the face of the tomb, and they went home to observe Sabbath. From sundown Friday till sundown Saturday, they observed the commandment, Luke says. But when the sun went down Saturday, now they could work, and so they prepared the spices, special fragrances, to anoint his body properly the next morning. All four Gospels are unanimous in this. Just as the sun was rising, the women went to the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away. They looked inside, and the body was gone. I told you that Luke loves one little Greek word, hidu, hidu. He writes, behold, behold, behold. Your translators got tired of repeating this little word, so they say suddenly. It means more than that, I think. It's almost, would you believe? 
Would you believe as they stood there wondering what in the world had happened, there were two young men in dazzling white clothes. Luke uses this word for dazzling white in another place to describe lightning arching across the sky when the Son of Man comes again. That bright. Saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has been raised. And would you believe that same afternoon, two of them were walking to their home in Emmaus when suddenly they were joined by a third who asked, What's your problem? As they walked along, downcast, faces to the ground, we thought he was the one, we thought he was the one, but nobody could kill Messiah. And he began to explain to them how the Scriptures do say Messiah could be the suffering servant, the one mocked the people, the one made faces at him, the one who would die. When they got home at dark, they said, come in and eat. They compelled him, come in and eat, and gave him the privilege of breaking the bread. And as he broke it and blessed it and gave it, they knew it was the Lord. And they went running back seven miles to Jerusalem, pounding on the door. And when the disciples opened the door, they said, Would you believe we've seen the Lord? And they said, Yes, He's been here too. Dr. Peter Marshall was a famous preacher from Scotland who came to this country to the largest Presbyterian church in Atlanta, Georgia. And from there was asked to be pastor of the biggest Presbyterian church in the capital, Washington, D.C., became chaplain to the U.S. Senate. Peter Marshall told a story from Scotland. One of the families in his church had a dying child. And though they did everything they could, medical science did everything it knew how, this child was dying. Even he could tell. And late one afternoon, he said to his mother, Do you know what happens when we die? Will it hurt? And she told Dr. Marshall, I'd been dreading this question. I was praying it would never come. I begged off to run to the kitchen and check on something, and I leaned over the sink and wept and prayed for the right answer. I wiped my eyes. I went back to my child, and I said, Remember before you got sick, how you would play and play. I could hardly get you to take a bath and brush your teeth and get your pajamas on, and you'd come back in and play until sometimes you'd just fall asleep and not even know it. And your daddy's big, strong arms would pick you up so gently that he could take you to your room and tuck you in, and you didn't know anything at all till you woke up the next morning. I believe the strong arms of God, as Jesus told us, will come and take us to our very own room and we wake up and know we're at home with the Lord. And would you believe? 